You're listening to The Engine Room, a podcast by Midlands Connect, covering transport, investment, the economy, sustainability, and more. Today, in the first of two podcasts about high-speed rail, we speak to HS2 expert Gareth Dennis about the history and future of this potentially transformational rail project. So, Gareth, thanks so much for joining us on the Midlands Connect podcast today. Those who don't know you, could you just give a brief background of who you are, what you do, and why you love rail so much? <laughs> yeah, so my name's Gareth Dennis. I'm a, Actually, my full day job title is that I'm a senior permanent way design engineer, but I generally simplify that and just say I'm a railway engineer. So I'm, I'm a railway engineer. I design railways for a living, which uh, is uh, is a... A childhood dream for some, I, I imagine. Um, it is as good as it sounds, I promise. Um, I, I also do writing. I do a bit of broadcasting about railway and engineering sort of uh, themes and ideas. Um, yeah, so so I kind of uh, that kind of covers the sorts of things I do. I pop up here and there, kind of talking about why railways are a good idea. And I suppose I grew up caring a lot about. Actually, the story I always tell is I, I I grew up seeing a lot of motorways. There was a lot of motorways being built across the countryside when I was young. And I, my grandparents lived in, in, in down in Devon, and I lived up in the far north of Scotland. And so we'd have a 10-hour drive seeing mo- lots of motorways being built. And I used to think, well, this is kind of cool, but isn't that destructive? And isn't it a good idea for us to do something better? And then as I grew up, I re- grew up, I realized that we should be doing more railway stuff. And, and it kind of continued from there. And it went from there. Fantastic. So I thought, Gareth, why don't we start with the basics here. Um, I wondered if you could tell me and our listeners a bit about the history of high-speed rail and, uh, you know, when it first started, who did who did it first, and also the basics of how it differs from a traditional railway line like we have currently across the country. Yeah, sure. So I suppose if I'm going to go full Socratic method, I need to, we need to ask ourselves, what is high-speed rail? Um, <laughs> And I suppose for the benefit of this conversation we're having, I suppose we're really talking about modern high-speed rail because we've had fast trains for a very long time. You know, um, everyone was striving to go faster and faster back when when passenger railways became a thing 200 years ago. But when we're talking about modern high-speed rail, we're talking about railway lines that can do um, speeds of uh, over 250 kilometers an hour on dedicated tracks is kind of the that's the kind of accepted standard for high speed rail. And, and really, we've we've had high speed rail of that type of system, you know, those sorts of speeds. Um, since the Japanese with with Shinkansen, they they really introduced the first sort of timetabled high speed service, and and actually things slowed down quite a lot after the Japanese started it. Everything slowed down, and actually the leap and bound that allowed the the explosion of high speed rail to give us the, the kind of networks we have today actually happened in Britain. Weirdly, um, it was a, a chap called Sir Alan Wickens was doing work on developing um, better ride for freight vehicles. And that work uh, ended up with us having um, uh, basically the tools to allow us to design trains that could go much, much faster without wobbling around on the track and giving a really bumpy, uncomfortable ride. Um, but then having developed that, we then didn't do very much with it uh, because France pipped us to the post in Europe. Actually, Poland uh, pipped France and us to, to the post. They, they got there first, then France. Um, and then... Germany, Spain, and everyone else kind of started building these these high speed lines. Uh, we decided we could get away with upgrading our existing lines, um, and what that meant was closing more local stations. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so that's kind of a bit about the the history. And in terms of how it differs from a from a traditional traditional railway line, well, actually, not a huge amount necessarily. If you're building a brand new railway, a high speed one and a regular one kind of look pretty similar, but there are certain things that make a difference. And so, you know, when you're going at those high speeds. 
as an engineer, I have to what, I have to build in what we call extra tolerances. Everything has to be that much much more accurately placed because at, at really high speeds, even a little wobble or a, or a jolt or a little bump in the track can have really uh, high impact forces for trains going over the top. So little things like that that are slightly different. But actually, materially, a new railway, whether it's high speed or not, generally has pretty much all the same features. Mm. So, so you mentioned there that you know it's it's similar but different. Would these increase tolerances, as you call them, is that why high speed rail is that bit more expensive than a traditional railway? Well, the the, the reality is that it's difficult to. If you look at um, so you look for example at, at kind of railways that haven't been built to high speed standards, if you like, um, and so for example, if you look, look to India where they have built huge uh, dedicated freight railways. Those are just as expensive as high-speed lines. So, you know, you look at Europe and Britain, generally we don't build many uh, new non-high-speed lines right. anymore. So actually, the costs are pretty similar. The, the challenge we've got is that in Britain, we have nothing really to compare against. The last time we built a, a, a kind of stre- longish stretch of railway line was the Borders Railway uh, in Scotland, um, and that was a single-track railway. And it was um, not that less, not that much less expensive than high speed two will be but per mile. So, so actually, uh, the the costs are not so dissimilar. The challenge, of course, with high speed rail is that, particularly in the UK, we bundle all those costs together. So you have all the new stations, the rolling stock, those those kind of really expensive tunnelled approaches into the big cities, all these sorts of things that um, that perhaps our, our our friends and colleagues in in, in Europe say don't generally put all those yeah. things into one headline cost, whereas we do. Yeah, I mean, in, in Spain, from what I understand, that, you know, they don't run the trains into the into the city centres. That's why it's perhaps less expensive. There's been a lot of comparisons between our proposed railway and, and those in, in that in Spain. Is that one of the main reasons that you it, see that it's... Exactly. And, and in France, Germany, I mean, this is one of the... Cha- I mean, we're not going to solve it overnight. This is a challenge with the fact that in Britain we have too much centralised government. But uh, <laughs> the challenge is that, unfortunately, we have this fixation with having one big headline project cost that we have to then justify a business case against, which doesn't really make any sense. Because if you think about it, there are lots of individual things going on there. For example, you know, Euston Station in London is long overdue a major upgrade anyway. Yeah. So really, if you were, you know, in Spain, France, Germany, they generally would, that would be a project and it wouldn't have to justify a business case because it would be part of a bigger plan. Uh, and, and I suppose that's getting to the root problems that we, the root cause of some of the issues we have in Britain is that we we lack that bigger plan. Yeah, that's, that's great. Well, we've established then, as I predicted, that high speed rail isn't a new phenomenon. It's been been here for decades in Japan, Italy, Spain, you've mentioned a few others. However, some people might be surprised to note that other countries that we wouldn't necessarily think would be as developed in you know infrastructure as we are like Morocco and Uzbekistan they also have stretches of high speed railway and you've also noted that for a long time we've had the materials and the know-how to build more high speed railway why do you think we've been so late to the party here in the UK it's a really good question and it comes up a lot and um, and there are lots of micro reasons, if you like, lots of sort of smaller contributing factors to that. But ultimately, the big one is that in, in Britain, we, we have a fixation with doing the absolute minimum viable thing we can do to get away with with providing what people need. And it's a bit of a strange habit we have in this country because we, we did, for, you know, after the Second World War, the attitude was slightly different. We did some quite grand things. You know, we created the NHS. We invested in a huge amount of new housing. Um, if you like, you know, we started building up, massively upgrading our road networks. You know, there there are things that we did on a massive scale, um, and we did. But we, 
particularly when it comes to the railways, you know, fairly soon after the Second World War, we lost that ability. We lost that ability, that that in that drive to strive for the best thing, not the minimum possible thing. And so, you know, high-speed rail in the UK, we've always sought to, uh, sorry, generally passenger rail, but fast trains in the UK, we've always sought to go, well, what can we squeeze out of the existing network? What can we squeeze out? Okay, well, we've, we're going to develop the advanced passenger train that can tilt, it can, you know, get loads of extra speed. That's great. That solves the problem, uh, which it didn't, partly because the project collapsed and partly because actually faster trains on existing tr uh, tracks end up reducing capacity for local people on you know, local stations. Yeah. Then we have the high-speed train, you know, that the famous pointy-nosed uh, blue and yellow kind of HST, the Intercity 125. It was exactly the same problem. Fantastic fast train, reduced journey times. Actually, Britain had the highest, amongst the highest average speeds in the world for its railway network right the way through until the kind of the, the early 1990s, certainly through the, the 70s and 80s because of the high-speed train. But again, it was at the expense of those regional and local services. So, so, so a bit of a challenge. And as so, and that was you know, so we've had this idea that we always have to deliver a minimum viable product when actually we should be aiming higher. Okay, so it's potentially a mixture of political win, uh, will, ambition, and you know, the potentially after the war, you know, we didn't want to spend as much on these big projects would you say yeah i think immediately after the war we were quite ambitious i think we lost that ambition at some some point through the, mm -hmm. the kind of the, the, the 50s and 60s we kind of lost that ambition that we'd had in the in the late 40s and early 50s somehow we just lost it and I know there are all sorts of historical reasons for that but but it seems that we've embedded that lack of ambition and and within the you know the, the one government department that really controls everything the uh, her majesty's treasury They've lost that 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 ambition, and they just see their job as as holding pressure, which is a bit of a challenge, really, because in order to grow, you know, not just economic growth, uh, and I'm not a fan of growth for growth's sake. When I talk about mm. economic growth, really, what I'm talking about is 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 moving things around in our economy, so moving away from you know uh, environmentally damaging types of uh, of kind of industrial development or and so on, and moving us towards things that are more sustainable. And that's so. So when I talk about growth, I'm not talking about just growth for growth's sake. Um, it's about you know moving 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 our economy around a bit, donor economics, if you like, and um, and so Treasury sort of sees its, its role maybe not to to facilitate that, and 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 that maybe is a bit of an issue. Um, there are lots of other interesting reasons, lots of other interesting historical reasons, shall we say, that <laughs> that perhaps feed into that. But um, yeah, so other countries see. I think perhaps it comes back to the plan idea. No one in Britain has ever really tried to tackle or answer the question: What are Britain's railways for? So maybe that's a bit of a challenge as well that, that means we're late to the party. Okay. So without any further ado then, because we're both dying to get onto it, we've gone through the archives and the history of high-speed rail. Let's talk about HS2 now, otherwise known as High Speed 2, the biggest infrastructure project in Europe. Um, can you tell us what the project is, what's proposed, when it was thought up and where we are now with the project? Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so... so I'm going to describe HS2 as the plans currently stand. There are lots of, there's lots of all sorts of discussion about what they might end up, and we're going to tackle that later. I'm almost shooting our fox a bit there. Yes. But I'm going to talk about them the, as they are currently announced, as the plans currently stand. So um, back in the late 2000s, I mean, this is where the first time the plans became formal. Actually, there have been plans for high speed, proper high-speed rail dating back to the 90s. But the first the, the plans as they currently stand really date back to the late 2000s and the, and the end of the, of, of the new Labour government. 
and uh, Androdonis and others kind of realized that the, the network, they just spent a huge amount of money on the, the West Coast route upgrade, this, this massive modernization program on the West Coast mainline, which had essentially all of the capacity benefit had been eaten up within a year once passenger numbers rebounded after all the disruptive work. So that benefit, the benefits of that were just immediately absorbed because there was this latent demand for better rail services. And there was a realization, ah, okay, we're going to have to do something different here. We've been dodging this for so long. We need a, a proper segregated high-speed route. And so there was a lot of work done. And in 2009, there was the announcement of High Speed 2, this, this project called High Speed 2. And within the, the, the you go straight to that the first documents that developed that project, and it's worth pointing this out. Um, uh, either you know it's worth worth highlighting a very key point, which is the two reasons for this was number one for the um, the benefit of building a, a new high speed service and improving connectivity that way. But number two, and almost underlined and in bold, was to enable released capacity on the existing network for more local, regional, and freight services. So those are the two benefits right back in the late 2000s. And then the coalition government picked up High Speed 2, and it actually got cross-party agreement. They they played around with it a bit. You know, the Heathrow connection was dropped. and But what we end up with as the kind of the final-ish plans are for there to be a high-speed link coming out of Euston Station uh, with a stop at Old Oak Common, uh, rushing northwards right the way up to just the uh, up to the West Midlands. There'll be a, a station at Birmingham Interchange. Then there's a spur which will go off into the centre of Birmingham to Curzon Street. And then there's the line then splits north of Birmingham at a massive, big, very snazzy diamond junction that I'm looking forward to seeing finished at some point. It'll be very, very pretty to look at. But um, anyway, uh, that's, that, that's the track engineer getting excitable <laughs> in me there. Um, <laughs> it'll split up. You'll have one route which will go up via Crewe to Manchester, and the other leg will go up through the East Midlands, uh, a new station in, in, in Totten, uh, East Midlands hub, and then it'll go up, uh, up towards Leeds, um, and then that will basically split services that are coming from uh, Scotland will come down from via Manchester and uh, and the northeast you know, from Newcastle and and, and and Yorkshire will come down the eastern leg. And so you're kind of splitting services that will then meet in the West Midlands and then head south to London. And so that's that. Those are the high speed two plans as they currently stand. And and they've got a weird numbering system. So you'll, you, your listeners might have heard these various phase names. It's worth mm -hmm. maybe pointing out what those are. So phase one is the, the route up to Birmingham. Phase 1A is the bit up to no see i even i can't get it right phase 2a <laughs> phase 2a is the bit up to yeah. crew and then phase 2b really confusingly is the bit from crew to manchester and the bit from uh the west midlands through the east midlands to leeds so the eastern leg and the little bit from crew to manchester are phase 2b so very okay. confusing yeah so um, where we are now in terms of the process obviously phase Phase one has reached Royal Ascent and construction has begun on that. Um, that's Birmingham to London, then yep. uh, Birmingham to Crewe. That's currently um, going through um, Parliament and we anticipate that that's, you know, that's safe, that's doing well. And then the question lies now, doesn't it, about phase 2B, the confusion, confusing bit which is split into, into two legs uh, and we know that it's been under review. The National Infrastructure Commission was asked to come up with what's, what they called a rail needs assessment. Mm. And they looked into how the eastern leg could be potentially scaled back, changed um, to, to make it slightly more affordable. You obviously have read the rail needs assessment that the National Infrastructure Commission wrote for government to inform its decision. What did you think about the NIC report? What did you think about the, the contents? 
Yeah, this is where it comes back to what I talked about this this released capacity idea. So, so um, as as was highlighted in the first reports that before HS2's name had even been thought of was the idea that when you build new high speed lines, the main benefit's not actually on the new high speed line. It's actually by if you can imagine, you know, Britain's Railways are a jack of all trades and a master of none. Um, you've got fat, you've got kind of slow services that stop at all the stations. You've got kind of services that stop here and there. You've maybe got regional services. You've got freight services in amongst that. Actually, the, the trains that cause the biggest drop in capacity are the high-speed services, the fast services, you know, your Avanti West Coast services, your LNER services, um, your, your East Midlands Railway fast services down to, to, to St. Pancras. These services, the reason these services are the worst for capacity is because what they do is they force, in order so they don't catch up the train in front that's stopping everywhere, you need a big gap in the time table so that big gap in the timetable means that you're you essentially have a, an empty railway you're not optimizing it so the, these big gaps uh really drop capacity so by taking those fast trains off putting them on their own line all the remaining services actually fit together really nicely they can squeeze up closer together which means you get a tremendous leap in capacity now why have i just explained that uh well i've explained it firstly because it's amazing how how much that's not uh, understood by people who even advocate yeah. for HS2, let alone <laughs> the people who oppose it. But the reason I've explained it now is because the NIC, the, the National Infrastructure Commission, their real rail needs assessment failed to uh, correctly account for that release capacity benefit. That numerically, their modelling used an incorrect number for that release capacity benefit. That used they assumed a very conservative figure of one uh, high speed seat accounts for one released seat on the existing railway network. Now, all of the work, all of the timetable planning work, all of HS2's assessment, all of the sort of standard rules about timetable planning suggest that it's two or three seats that you can release on the existing railway network. To give an idea of, you know, to give an idea of scale, um, the East Coast Main Line, with its old mixture of different, different traffic, you get about maybe five or 6,000 seats per hour per direction. Um, Thameslink, which is a dedicated, you know, in, uh, kind of single type of traffic, traffic service, um, gets 40,000 seats wow. per hour per direction so it's a tremendous you know it's nearly 10 times capacity release so so one seat of high speed you know one seat per seat if you like is tremendously conservative and they're all their modeling as a result was just wrong it was just wrong so unfortunately that whole report just doesn't hold up to any sort of numerical scrutiny. They underestimated the, the benefits then of, of high speed. Exactly. And as yeah. a result of that, they, they they kind of the headline of that document was, oh, you should emphasize regional connectivity over long distance connectivity, which, of course, is precisely what a high speed railway network is, to, is, is designed to do sure. by allowing you to run those dedicated services on the high speed network. The existing network can be good at what it does, which is serving local people communities it's got all those stations already built in in towns and city centers serving far better connectivity for local commuter regional services and of course freight yeah i mean obviously in here in the midlands there, there were some quite interesting suggestions around toton which is where mm. the, you know the the moment that the hs2 hub station um is said that it's going to be built and then we had suggestions around east midlands parkway so we're really looking forward to to finally getting that integrated rail plan yeah, that, that clarity yeah, yeah that clarity it's worth cutting in because because I, I just want to point out midlands connect have done by far the best work on showing what hs2 is all about in the work that's related to the the east midlands hub and, and providing that connectivity you know essentially providing a series of sort of uh you know they call them in europe s-train s-band services these sort of metro type rail services that will connect between Derby, Nottingham and Toton, the East Midlands hub, and then beyond, you know, up to Crewe and, 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 and all the different towns in the area connecting up to that hub. 
that hub becomes this fantastic transport connection. And, and nowhere else will you find a better spot to fit 400 meter long platforms in and around these Midlands. So, you know, the idea that, that Parkway is a, a satisfactory alternative to that, not only is that you know, not in and of its own merit correct, but also it means that all those plans that have been developed by, you know, and bought into by all the regional leaders, all of the councils and, and combined authorities in the area, um, all those plans essentially turn to ash and you have to start again, which just set waste, huge wastes of effort and time and money. Very frustrating. So, um, yeah, sorry. I thought I'd cut in there and just yeah. point out how, how valuable uh, the is. I'm going to out of it, Gareth, uh, Gareth so I'm uh, more than <laughs> happy. Um, so as well as HS2, obviously the integrated rail plan is, is bigger than that, isn't it? It's going to look at regional rail improvements. So in the north, they have Northern Powerhouse Rail. In the Midlands, we have Midlands Engine Rail. So we've got the Midlands Rail Hub. We've got a lot of other projects. Um, so it's it's kind of D-Day really for us, understanding what's going to happen over the next couple of decades. Mm. What would you like to see? I think I, I can kind of guess the answer, but what would you like to see in the integrated rail plan? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the short answer is all of it. Uh, which I suppose is what you're guessing. But for me, I, I think there is value in having uh, Britain's railways have and have for decades lacked a plan, a clear vision. So for me, the integrated that the integrated rail plan, it's critical that it isn't just a list, a bullet point list of projects that have already been in the pipeline and kind of feel like they've been sellotaped together. No, we need to understand, right, what are the railways for? And the answer to it's not a complicated answer. The answer is, well, the railways are, are there to provide a sustainable way of moving people and things around the country. Um, and so we want, to, in order to reduce our overall greenhouse gas emissions in this country, by the way, transport accounts for the largest share of those. Mm. Um, and it hasn't got any better throughout my entire, either of our entire lifetimes. Transport emissions have stayed the same, whereas energy, for example, is dropped by 60%. Um, in order to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, the only way to do that, and this is independent of electric cars, the only way to do that is to reduce the number of people who drive to reduce the amount of goods that are hauled by over our roads. So in order to do that, we need rail needs to increase its capacity. And the headline that I always repeat is, and this is not me just pulling a number out of thin air, this is backed up by research by the Centre for Alternative Technology and indeed by the, the Green Party's research policy group, is that Britain's railways need to double their capacity by the middle of this century. So by 2050, we need between 50 and 100% more capacity in our railways. That's what I want the IRP, that's what I want the integrated rail plan to deliver. It needs to be looking at how it's going to achieve that. And that has to be with a, a backbone of high-speed rail, both north, south and east-west, and then backed up with regional investment, unlocking those bottlenecks, providing better regional connectivity, providing metro services, these S-train services I've just talked about, in all of the major urban areas across the country, not just London, not just Manchester, not just Birmingham, but across these Midlands, um, you know, in places like South Yorkshire, desperately needed. You know, we need to be expanding rails provision so that people can, so that rail isn't a necessary choice. So it's the obvious choice. That's really what we need to do. So in this, as a final word then, Gareth, and part one of our HS2 series. <laughs> do you think there is any other way to meet those environmental goals other than building HS2? Now, so I, I, I use this sort of simple simple logic puzzle of, right, you, okay, you want to reduce emission, greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, okay, right. So to do that, you need to drive modal share away from roads towards rail. Okay, yeah, great, you need to do that. At that point, it becomes the domain of the rail industry. So up to that point, you don't need any rail people, so you can ignore all calls of bias. Up to that point, right, okay, so... Fewer greenhouse gas emissions, everyone agrees on that, uh, who's sensible. Uh, modal share uh, being shifted towards rail and, and, and less polluting modes. Yeah, pretty much everyone agrees on that. That's that's a necessary thing. Then it becomes a domain of the railway planners, timetablers, engineers, and so on. And 
as an industry, we are unified by in saying that the only way to achieve that massive release in capacity is by building a high-speed rail network. And currently, that high-speed rail network is called HS2. There is no magical alternative high-speed high rail plan that has been fully worked up and that we can deliver. You know, politics is, you know, the real, real politic, if you like, means that HS2 is what a north-south high-speed rail network would look like no matter what. With all the compromises, all the things that aren't perfect about it, all the issues, the reality is that's what. 10 20 years of development gets you so there is no alter no realistic alternative that's we've been through that process hs2 is our north south high speed rail line great i mean that's a, a great place to leave it thanks very much gareth and we'll speak to you again soon thanks so much that's all for today thanks for listening to the engine room keep an eye on the midlands connect website for more new episodes mm-hmm.